On the show today, we will be reviewing and giving our thoughts on the movie Cessationist. Then we will look at an article discussing six reasons why we know that the gospel writers didn't lie. And then we'll end with a discussion on why Spencer is leaving the gym. So we have a great show and we hope you stick around to the end. All right, let's get to it. Welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. I'm your host, Spencer. It's my beautiful wife, Nikki. Hello. And we're grateful that you're joining us today. If you're new here, um, don't let the name fool you. We are very Christian, very religious folks, uh, but it's more the world and especially this nation anymore that's becoming increasingly religionless, very secular place. So that at least in part is where the name comes from. And we're going to do Today, what we try to do every Saturday, and that's take a look at the news from around the world, stories that pique our interest and try to look at them from a Christian worldview, um, try to help Christians live a life that's pleasing to God in this secular world. So we're going to try to do that today with some of these stories we have. Um, And I do like these stories. They're more, you know, in line with more Christian faith rather than, you know, politics and all that garbage. So should be a good show, but before we get to all the news and reviews, is there anything you'd like to say? Prayer requests, praise reports, anything of that sort? Um, I guess I don't have any specific prayer requests. Um, I guess, again, I, not, I already brought up my surgery, hernia surgery. Not a real big deal, though, but still, prayers are nice. Um, <laughs> yes. God is in control. Yes, it's, I could say it's not a big surgery, but I guess anytime you're going under the knife, it, it is a big deal. My trust is in God, not in man's ability. So yes, pray, just give thanks to God either way. Absolutely. And just prayer requests or praise reports, I'm sorry, it was a great week. Um, just at work, kind of passed a little hurdle there at work, which was nice, kind of get that out of the way. Um, So I can do my job a little bit easier now. And then we had our meeting this week with the elders of our church, sort of discussing kind of future plans if we decide to stick around here um, at the church and hopefully, you know, be mentored, discipled, and, you know, hopefully kind of um, built up into eldership there at the church. And that was a huge blessing. Super grateful for Mm -hmm. that. So God is good. Um, (laughs) But we will get this thing going, get our plugs out of the way, and then we'll dive into the review. So uh, if you got a missionary team, if you're a small business, if you're a first responder, I just recommend going to check out Cardinal Contingency Solutions and go see what they can do in the vein of their travel risk management. If you're a missionary, whatever it happens to be, law enforcement in their um, messaging, counter-messaging, counter-exploitation super valuable in the world that we live in today where everyone's got a cell phone and everyone's got, you know, what is it, cap cut nowadays or something. They can make you look like a, you know, say whatever they want you to say in 30 seconds or less. So um, get that training. I think it'll be beneficial to you. And uh, they're wonderful dudes. So go give them an email, give them a call. I think you'll be blessed. And then also, you guys know that we're proud members of the Christian podcast community. It's a great place where you can go and find 50 to 60 good Christian podcasts talking about 
all sorts of things. Like here's some of the latest episodes. Women are the weaker vessel. Boy, I'm sure people are lining up to listen to that, huh? Uh, and here we go. Conversations with an atheist. That I'm sure is right in Andrew's wheelhouse. So <laughs> that's probably a pretty good conversation there. But good thing with Christian podcast community, um, you know, it's one feed that you got to subscribe to and you get all 50 to 60 podcasts mm -hmm. on there. So it's a great way to kind of build up your podcast game. And then the last one, kind of the shameless plug here, if you want to help the show out, the easiest way you can do that is just with a like, subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Um, if your platform allows you to do that, um, you can find us anywhere that you listen to podcasts. We're on pretty much all the podcasting platforms. Go follow, subscribe there, leave us a review. Those sorts of things certainly help. And then if you want to help, you know, with, you know, financially, I suppose, right? We got affiliate links down in the show notes, got links. You can go pick up a t-shirt like my John 14, six truthless times need timeless truths. I was thinking you were going to wear a different shirt today that went with our, one of our topics, the six reasons. Oh, <laughs> nope. Didn't even think about it, but I did get a compliment on this shirt today by a nice old lady as I was leaving the grocery store. So maybe you could get complimented yourself if you go and pick up one of these nice shirts there. <laughs> and we would be blessed if you did that. So that's the plugs. Now, no horror music. We haven't had the horror music in a while, probably because we haven't talked about politics in a while. Um, yeah. So to our main topic here is the movie review. Um, so we're going to be discussing the recently released movie from Broken Stone Studios, which is called Cessationist. So um, before we dive into the actual movie and our thoughts and all of that, the movie, you know, quite plainly is about a defense of the cessationist theological position. That's really all it is. And they explain it in the movie, but if you're unfamiliar with the term, cessationism is sort of the counter argument to continuationism. So a cessationist says kind of the big four miraculous gifts of the Bible have ceased. That's why they're called cessationists. It's ceasing. So the gifts of healing, prophecy, speaking in tongues, and then largely you can consider the gift of apostleship. Has Those four gifts have ceased. Whereas continuationists, they believe that those gifts have continued till today, and they still would contend that they practice and walk in those gifts today. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the two big camps here. This movie, obviously titled Cessationist, seeks to defend the position that those gifts have ceased. Um, and I will just mention for me, and, you know, maybe this is one of the reasons why I like the movie so much. I did watch it twice this week, um, is because it features pretty heavily some of the professors and the speakers that I've sat under and listened to at the master seminary. So, um, I'm a bit of a Homer in that respect. One of the main people interviewed in this movie is Nathan Businitz, who taught my charismatic theology, uh, course. And I think he was one of the lead speakers at the Strange Fire Conference, you know, a decade ago or whenever they did that. So uh, I'm a bit of a homer there. I just want to make that claim up front. Try not to be entirely biased about this, but just so you guys know where we're coming from. So that's the movie. That's what it's about. So what were your overall thoughts, Nikki, of the movie? Just overall, the movie is an entire kind of total package. 
I just thought it was done really well. I learned some things. I really like um, that they get into the history of it. Um, yeah, I guess if you've just heard the term cessationist and you think you have an idea of what it means, I yeah, I encourage you to go watch it. There's a lot to learn. And I would like to, like you said, that <coughs> to have a, a counter argument movie. <laughs> Yeah. This would be nice. <laughs> yeah. It'd um, be great if somebody would produce the continuationist equivalent of this movie, just for counter argument's sake. Any other big thoughts on the movie? I mean, overall, I just, it was really well done. I don't yeah. know. Okay. I just want to make sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my thoughts generally, like you said, I think the movie was produced really well. Uh, I don't think it was necessarily to the quality of like, the essential church or sound of freedom. You know, we've reviewed those movies as well. Those were obviously, you know, well, essential church might be my new favorite movie of all time. And sound of freedom obviously was a Hollywood blockbuster. Mm -hmm. Right. But you know, this movie was made really well in sort of that documentary style of movie. That's what it was essentially a documentary. Um, mm -hmm. And like Nikki said, I'll kind of piggyback on that. I do wish that there was a continuationist equivalent movie um, you know, because we've acknowledged on this show probably many times, and we probably will many more times. Nikki and I are cessationists. That's what we believe. We believe the gifts have ceased, but yeah. we're open to hearing good arguments from either side. I've I've not decided that like I've learned all there is to learn. I'm done listening. Um, right, it's not going to be the case. I want to hear the other arguments, and I'd like to hear it. You know, in a a pretty logical biblical way the way right. this movie is so right lots of scripture in in context and everything but i just want to say because some people think cessationist means like that you think god doesn't heal anymore um so that's a i just wanted to clarify it doesn't mean that god doesn't answer prayers um he doesn't heal yes we certainly still pray and ask God for things. And we do believe God still heals today. So the only difference right. is that someone doesn't have that gift and walking in it like the apostles did. So yeah, we all have the ability to, you know, seek God's um, mercies and healing people through prayer. But that's universal, right? Mm -hmm. We all have that ability to go to God for someone in prayer and God does what God pleases, and he still does work miracles. But yeah, mm -hmm. it's the idea that there's nobody today walking around with this supernatural gift of healing like the apostles, or this um, prophetic gift, the likes of Moses and, you know, um, Elijah and those people, or, you know, speaking in tongues like the early church, where they're just speaking foreign languages that they've never learned. There's none of that today is what we hold to. So, right. um, that's kind of the point there. And, you know, I will acknowledge that in this movie, they do sort of feature some of the people that, you know, even charismatics that would consider themselves continuationists would probably consider fringe, you know, the Benny yeah. Hens of the world and that sort of stuff. So, you know, again, it would be nice to hear a more reasoned kind of well put together um, defense of the continuationist argument. I'd be open to listen to that, but even still, the movie was well-made, very informative, and it's really just what you would want from a documentary, I think. Mm -hmm. So 
a lot of information in the movie. Um, I highly, highly recommend you go and give it a watch for yourself. It's on Amazon, probably wherever you can find movies. And it's a good movie, you know, biblical discussion, whether it's challenging your beliefs or, you know, undergirding your beliefs. I think it's a good listen and a good watch. So we just pulled out kind of four, I think four kind of topics to discuss from the movie, a lot more that they get into than what we have here. So um, please go give it a watch if you think it's interesting. But the first point that I wanted to bring up is they kind of open the movie and um, it's not like right at the open, but kind of early on. And they open it by asking the question, what is a miracle? Mm. And I think this is such an important question. And one that I'm not sure gets thought about as much as maybe it should in light of sort of the modern day miracle workers that we, you know, call them. Mm -hmm. Um, The movie goes on to define the term miracle. And this is kind of my paraphrase of what they said is when the natural order is reversed or when something supernatural occurs. And um, I went and looked at Webster's dictionary and it says that a miracle is an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. And, you know, this idea, what is a miracle? I think this is a point that needs to be really discussed when we talk about continuationists or the continuing of miracles today. Um, Because if the gifts are supposedly miraculous, right, that's what we kind of dub Mm -hmm. these four gifts, the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts, whatever, if these gifts are miraculous, are we seeing anything miraculous from them? With the amount of churches we have today and the number of people who claim to be Christian, you'd think you would know personally one person in your life who performs miracles, who's prophesied, and it was accurate every time. Um, I have not seen a miracle done by someone who has, um, says they have a gift. I've seen people healed, asking God to heal them, but not anybody going up to somebody who's sick and them just being miraculously healed. You just think you would see it often. You would personally know somebody. It wouldn't just be something you might see on YouTube, people who've made a name for themselves. And you can't test to see, is this real or not? Right. I mean, because of all the modern supposed people walking in these miraculous gifts, I mean, there's millions and millions that claim to believe this. And I mean, you would imagine you'd be seeing dead men raised everywhere. We would be seeing things, But are we seeing that miraculous? And if it doesn't um, happen, the argument is that, well, you just didn't have enough faith. It falls on you. Right, of course. It's always us. Because the argument is that it's not God, because God's will is always to move through the gifts. That's what they say. But if, I don't know, the whole thing with faith, I think if we don't have enough faith for salvation, like if we have faith for salvation, why don't we have faith for miracles? Because if you are not healing people and you supposedly have this gift of healing or even a prophecy, whatever it is, it would make you doubt your salvation. Say, how do I have faith for salvation, but not for healing? Like, 
what's the difference? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a weird, but I mean, obviously you have to have a workaround when, you know, you pray for somebody and they don't get healed, but you tell them that healing's guaranteed, right? But, you know, you read in scripture yeah. and God doesn't need your faith to do a miracle. Right. God's not limited by it's your the faith. the faith of your friends. Right. Uh, the... Jesus raised the widow named son from the dead. Yeah. And they didn't ask for it. He was just passing by. So they had yep. no faith. The and other the... one was dead, right? And Christ raised him from the dead. Yeah. So, um, God doesn't need your faith. He might like your faith. He doesn't need it. He's God. But, you know, are we seeing the miraculous today? Like, when we see the miraculous in Scripture, right, we see... Moses and Elijah parting water to walk across on dry ground. We see Christ walking on water. Um, we see dead men raised. Almost like, I mean, these are incredible miracles, right? We see things like Solomon, who has this, you know, otherworldly kind of wisdom that the whole world around him knew and understood how wise Solomon was. We see otherworldly strength in people like Samson. These are miraculous gifts given by God. But we don't see any of that today. You know, instead of what we see, instead of that sort of miraculous, what we see today is a lot of like, you know, the supposedly the leg lengthenings of a few centimeters. You know, that's supposedly some miraculous gift of healing today. Where's all these dead men that are being raised? Like we said, if there's millions and tens of millions of people that believe that they're operating the miraculous gifts, where are they? Where's the waters being parted, right? Um, you would just hear more testimony of people. I just have to keep going back to that. Like, you would know people who at least are saying, oh, I saw this. I witnessed this. Like, they would be excited talking about it. You don't see anybody in churches excited talking about them even witnessing somebody else be being healed by someone with a gift. Yeah, like, do we see the miracles of, like, limbs being regrown and restored and withered hands and these sorts of things? You know, so I think it's right. We need to ask, you know, if the miraculous is still happening today in these large numbers, where are the miracles? I think that's a legitimate yeah. question to ask. Right. Um, and like I you think can... when you ask it, I think you're left wanting. And that doesn't mean someone can't pray over you and you be healed when you have someone pray on your behalf, um, yeah, you can be healed right away. Um, I've had people pray for me and, you know, this sickness, regular sickness, you know, a cold, allergy, stuff like that. And I have received healing. Um, I've, I've asked God to heal me before of a sickness and it did leave instantly. It was like a miraculous healing and it was just me. I think I brought that up before. Right, but yeah. we're, nobody's discounting that. I mean, we're not discounting that. Again, God does what God pleases, and he's asked us to pray for healing. He's asked us to pray for others, and so we do, and mm -hmm. God moves. I mean, there's nothing— Yeah, we're supposed you to know, ask. Nobody, I think, in the Christian church, by and large, would disagree with that. But again, we you know, would say that doesn't equate to Nikki has a gift of healing now, like the Apostle Paul. She can— pray on a handkerchief and send it to someone in the mail and they're healed. All. Like, that's not happening today is what we would, and, and what the documentary is kind of making the case on. So, mm -hmm. um, but the second point that they brought up, 
um, and I really like this point. I've heard it discussed before, but they pointed out really well in the movie. Um, you know, they kind of brought up that a lot of people today think that the Bible, you know, in there, God was just sort of working incredible, incredible miracles all the time, you know, throughout all of biblical history. But in reality, there was really only three time periods in which God worked incredible miracles through men. And they point this out in the documentary that um, in the times of Moses and a little bit into Joshua, which they point out lasted around 65 years. Then the time period of Elijah and Elijah, which lasted again around 65 years. God did incredible miracles through men. And then the third time was during the life of Christ and the apostles, which again lasted for around 65 years. Hmm. Outside of those three specific time frames, um, there were occasional examples of, you know, God working through men, like we mentioned, Samson and this sort of thing. Um, and of course, God still did miracles as, you know, because God, pretty much anytime God does anything, it's miraculous, right? He's the supernatural is interjecting himself into the natural. Um, so it's always, you know, incredible, but it's really outside of those three times periods, the miraculous of that nature was pretty sparse. And um, they also made the point, and it was really the first time that I had heard this point, that even in the New Testament, um, there isn't any more mention of miracles being done after 2 Corinthians was written. And if you look at a biblical chronology, you know, when the New Testament was written, there are 16 books written after 2 Corinthians, and I think seven of them by Paul. So don't hold me to that. That's what I kind of briefly looked up. So I'll, that's as accurate as I can get. But um, that's a pretty, I think, solid claim if it's true. And, you know, so the point of that, right, is the Gospels were written, and then it's, you know, Acts, and we see, you know, the miracles and stuff like that. But then as the church is being established, it's kind of got its foundation, and Paul starts writing letters, these other apostles start writing their epistles. Um, the gifts are beginning to wane to the point where after Second Corinthians, they don't mention the miraculous gifts anymore. And um, they also mention, and again, I think this is noteworthy, which is why we're noting it, um, that in the pastoral epistles, which are First and Second Timothy and Titus, those contain no mention of operating in the miraculous as a qualification or an expectation. You know, so the point of that is that there was a lessening of the miraculous, even as the canon of Scripture was being completed. And I think that's important to note. Like, Again, miracles weren't just cover to cover in the Bible. Everybody right. was doing them. Everybody that was saved. I like saved. that they pointed that out because it's easy to see. You're like, oh, you know, you don't, you can't really argue against that. It's just, I like when things are pointed out in scripture that maybe you just, you never thought about, you never considered. And you're just like, well, that's true. Can't argue against that. Yeah, I think that's a really good one um, because I've heard the argument, you know, before that, the, the gifts were waning. And you hear the arguments about, you know, Paul at one time in his life, right? He's raising people from the dead, right? The guy, and they point that out in the movie. They show a little kind of um, a clip or they make a little video of 
the man sitting in the window while Paul is preaching. He falls out the window and dies. And then mm -hmm. Paul raises him from the dead. So we know that Paul operated in those gifts. But then, you know, even as he's writing to Timothy and these guys later, right? And he's not feeling good. And he tells him, you know, hey, just drink some wine. And he's like, why not just heal him? Right? Why not just send him the handkerchief of healing and these sorts of things? Well, mm -hmm. it would make sense then if the gifts were waning. Mm -hmm. Um so I think that's a good point. And, you know, and that goes back to the point, I think it's in Hebrews, right, that talks about um, they were there for, like, the laying the foundation mm -hmm. of the church. And once that foundation was built, mm -hmm. um, then they weren't necessary yeah. anymore. Because the foundation isn't just of the apostles, it's the work of the apostles as well. And there's no more apostles, those no, there's no more works of the apostles. Right. And we certainly hold to that, you know, that there's people today that call themselves apostles. And I guess in a sense, right, the word apostle means, I think, sent one, you know, so it's somebody who is sent. So I guess, in a, you know, if you're a missionary, you can say I'm an apostle. Um, but, you know, they would classify that as like a little a apostle, whereas we're talking about the gift of apostleship is the big a apostle. You're mm -hmm you know, one of the 12 kind of a thing. And those don't exist anymore. You know, I think the Pope still claims like apostolic, you know, office mm -hmm. or whatever. He doesn't. He's not an apostle <laughs> in the same sense, right? Mm -mm. Um, but I think that's a good point. That even as you read through scripture, if you're paying attention to it, you can see that the miraculous, it not only ebbs and flows throughout time, but then it also begins to wane as scripture comes to a close well, and the lives of the apostles come to an end. Even when you think about, like in the book of Revelation or anywhere where it's talking about the end times, how there's going to be famine and all these just horrible things happening. And I guess it depends on your end times view as well. But yeah. if there's believers on the earth during those times of famine and whatnot, wouldn't they just be able to multiply food they have the holy spirit can't they just do miracles i don't know <laughs> It'd be interesting right you know and they kind of make that claim and people have made it before right you know if you got the gift of healing and i mean it's sad because it's the same argument that an atheist would use against christian you got the gift of healing why don't you go to the children's hospital and heal them all and you're like i mean you know, i like to yeah, we wouldn't we have it. any... I, mean, I don't know. I mean, we read stories of Christ and, you know, and everyone who came to him was healed, right? All of them were healed. He yeah. went from town to town healing, you know? Like if you had... a gift of healing. If you had one of those gifts, what would you do? What's something big you would do? Like if I had the gift of, of healing, I don't know, I think I would just go into the city and heal everybody's minds that have been destroyed by drugs and heal this problem in our city. I would yep. probably use it that way. You wouldn't just lengthen legs. But I know we have a lot of people <laughs> in this city who, um, yeah, wouldn't just lengthen their legs. A lot of them yeah. look like they have one leg shorter than the other with the way they walk around. So we need Todd White over here in Albuquerque to help them. I suppose. <laughs> Um, anyway, so the third point that I wanted to bring up here, uh, they talk about the purpose of the miraculous, um, and the gift 
gifting such as prophecy, like the reason for the miraculous, and ex- specifically, I suppose, the gift of prophecy. Um, and they make the the point that these gifts were being given to specific men at specific times, and it was given to them to establish them as God's sort of chosen emissaries. And the second reason that it was given to them, so the first one, you know, they give these miraculous signs to sort of highlight them as God's emissaries. And then the Mm -hmm. second one was in order for them to give revelations that would be written down for the sake of the church. Again, right, Moses and Joshua and um, the apostles and Christ and giving these prophecies that were written down that we have today. That was kind of the point of them. Um, and I think it's interesting that, you know, there is agreement on this part, you know, you know, cessationists and continuationists, I think by and large, most of them would agree that the canon of scripture is closed. Like we're not getting new books written and added to the Bible. We're not expecting a third new Testament. Most of them would consider and claim that they believe the canon of scripture is closed. Um, so I think that that begs the question, you know, what then would be the purpose of continuing prophecy and new revelation? If we all agree the Bible is complete, God, you know, the revelation that God gave to us is complete and sufficient, then what's the purpose of continued prophecy and new revelation? You know, because I would assume that if God was in fact really talking to Sarah Young, Jesus was really giving her a new revelation every day and she's writing them down and Jesus calling, then we would have to consider that that book is infallible, inerrant, the words of God and should be treated in such the same way that we treat scripture. Um, But nobody does that, right? Even those who like the book, and I'm pretty sure even Sarah Young herself never made the claim that these are the infallible, inerrant words of the living God that all must adhere to. Nobody makes that claim. But if they're, in fact, prophecies from God, new revelations, well, then they are, mm-hmm. right? We need to handle them that way. You know, so what's the deal with this modern kind of supposed prophecy? You know, mm. they're kind of claiming that it's just like a take it or leave it instruction from God. Hey, here's a new revelation. Do what you want with it instead of thus saith the Lord. So where mm-hmm. do we really see that in scripture? I always reminded of the the John Owen quote, and we've said it before on here, but if private revelations agree with scripture, they are needless. And if they disagree, they are false. So is the canon closed? Has God said everything that he intended for us to know? Yeah. You have to say, is is the Bible sufficient for all things? Well, in my experience from hearing prophecy or supposed prophecy is, is just that. It's just taking what the Bible already says and sort of wording it in such a way that it makes it seem, you know, like you got the revelation, you know, well, God's tearing down the high places and you're like, that's just like in the Bible. It just kind of reminds me of what Catholics do. They want their tradition and scripture to go together and people who 
say they all these gifts are still for today and prophecy, especially prophecy, but it goes against scripture, they're doing the same thing the Catholics are with their oral tradition. It's the same thing. It's just they're looking, they're saying what they want to be true in the future, what they think they hear from God now. It's kind of the same thing. They're reading it into scripture when scripture contradicts. Yeah, which is certainly dangerous and um, definitely why we need to be prayerful and I guess open, you know, we've talked about this before about, you know, laying aside our own traditions, our own even experiences, right? And Mm -hmm. judging all of that against the word of God. And, you know, if his word is true and infallible and inerrant and we're flawed, sinful humans, and we have to even lay aside our experiences to mm-hmm. the truth of, of scripture. So, um, and it's not easy to do, of course, right? In but, our experience, I mean, just with false religions that say, well, an angel appeared to me and, you know, the Mormons and like, that's an experience, but that doesn't make it true. <laughs> yeah. You can easily point out that that one's false. But then when <laughs> your cousin tells you that, you know, he was wrestling a demon in his bed and he heard the Lord tell him, you'd like, but that's true. I don't know. Sure. Um, but, yeah. you know, we don't see a lot of thus saith the Lord anymore. Um, and even when they do say that, again, from my experience, it's just a lot of repackaged scripture. So again, like John Owen said, if it's just saying what the Bible already said, what's the point of it? Maybe you know. God has to speak through people today because nobody's reading the Bible. Yeah. So know. if it agrees with Scripture, he's like, boy, I really thought they'd read this thing, but they're not. So. <laughs> but we still have to test everything people say um, with Scripture. So, well, thank goodness <laughs> for Audible and Kindle. You can listen to it while you're driving to work. So. Um, but they do discuss in here kind of the ways that people have gotten around that idea that modern day prophecy and modern day revelations aren't inerrant or infallible. And um, they kind of get around that by insisting that prophecy, even in the New Testament, was different than Old Testament prophecy. You know, they kind of make the case that while Old Testament prophecy had been um it had to be completely accurate or the person was considered a false prophet. New Testament prophecy can be wrong or right, which is why it's up to us to judge and determine um, if the person is, you know, telling the truth or um, being accurate in their prophecy. Uh, They use the example of Agabus, who is, I think it's in Acts 11 and I think Acts 21, they talk about the prophet Agabus in the New Testament. And a lot of the more scholarly continuationists will point to Agabus being a prophet who got it wrong in the New Testament. Um, But the documentary, and they did this in my class as well, in the books, the cessationist argues that Agabus didn't get the prophecy wrong. To claim that he got the prophecy wrong is in fact wrong Mm. because Luke doesn't record that Agabus got the prophecy wrong. The Apostle Paul never highlights Agabus as a false prophet um, or any of that. So they would, you know, one side would say Agabus got it wrong. The other side says, nope, Agabus actually got it right. So, you know, you're going to have to go and listen, watch the movie yourself, 
and what see you'll what have the arguments. to do is read the scripture yourself. Well, certainly Just, do that. But then if you want to hear the, the specific arguments, you know, what are they saying about Agabus? And um, yeah, I think it's a good discussion, but that's kind of where they get the claim that, well, no, Sarah Young could have heard from God and it could still be wrong because New Testament prophecy doesn't have to be held to the same standard, which from a man-centered perspective, that's what you would want. Because Old Testament prophets who got it wrong were false prophets, wicked men, and they were killed. Well, now the modern day Chris Valatons of the world who get all their, you know, get prophecies wrong, they don't want to be stoned out in the streets. They're like, well, you know, we're allowed to get it wrong today. Why? (laughs) God doesn't know how to work with the modern man's brain. Somehow it's different than the Old Testament mind. I don't know. And we're even praying for these gifts. I don't think people were asking to be a prophet in the Old Testament. They just were. You had no choice. People today, they, they everybody wants to be a prophet. But they're not. You can ask God. That's the one thing. He's not he's gonna make not gonna make everybody a prophet who's asking. No. It's... No, for sure not. Um, but even that, and I think they even make the claim in the documentary, forgive me, I didn't write this note down. Um And I think we even talked about this at church, but even the idea of prophecy um, didn't always carry the same connotation of receiving sort of a fresh word from God to speak. I mean, prophecy and prophesying was speaking the word of God. So even when you were preaching, you were prophesying in Mm -hmm. a sense. Um, You know, but I don't know of anywhere in scripture, specifically where it says that prophets of today or even in the New Testament times, they can get things wrong and it's okay. Yeah, where does that come from? You know, we're supposed to test things, but we're always supposed to test things. Just because you can get away with something doesn't mean it's right what you did. But they get, I guess they nobody takes anything serious today. Nobody's ever held accountable for anything. No. In the church or out of the church, this is what hap- happens. This has... Um, this way of letting people get away with stuff has come into the church. Yeah, and that's one of the things that they point out in this documentary a lot is that, you know, a lot of times these, you know, false prophets, these false, you know, miracle workers and stuff, they're never really held to a standard. You know, they get something wrong, they fall into sin, they fall into whatever, and they're just sort of accepted back in. You know, they get, I mean, how many people have come out and claimed, you know, their Benny Hinn experience was false, right? But Benny Hinn still, you know, he was still doing his thing. There's still people going around on their healing excursions, mm-hmm. doing their thing. And it's like, yeah. no one's ever held to account. I think if people, if we lived in the type of culture where you would be stoned for lying, speaking on behalf of God when you're not, we wouldn't have so many people saying that they're prophets. They would be afraid. And if God spoke to them, they would speak because they would fear God more than man. So, right. And they don't, I mean, we've talked about our Jesse Duplantis experience where he's almost shushing God. Oh, God's just a jabber jaw. I'm just trying to get through this talk. And he's just he talking, talking, talking in my ear. I'll get to it, God. Don't you worry. I got, and you're like, uh, and honestly, oh. in that situation, I think the righteous thing would be to stone him to death. Um, not that I want to stone anyone to death, but. 
holding people to account for their sin and their blasphemy is a righteous thing. Um, just like I would say, you know, giving the death penalty to a child rapist is the righteous thing to do. Yeah. Um, it's the same yeah. thing. But yeah, no one's held to account for anything nowadays, let alone, you know, those who blaspheme God, take his name in vain, you know, claim he's doing something through them, all these sorts of things. So, um, but you know, the Bible does speak clearly about those who are false prophets, you know, Deuteronomy chapter 18, you know, and I would have to say, again, unless they come in and say, you know, New Testament prophets, you're allowed to be, you know, get things wrong and mess things up. So the, you know, the Deuteronomy code of false prophets is hereby null and void. If they don't say that, then you'd have to assume it still stands, you know, and according to Deuteronomy 18, you know, like a prophet who is proven wrong or is false, they're a false prophet. False prophets are evil and they're wicked men and women. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you went out and prophesied that Donald Trump was going to be reelected, then you're a false prophet and therefore you're an evil and a wicked person. Like you would have to make that assumption. Instead, we just go, ah, they got it wrong. Let him apologize. No, he claimed to speak for God on something that he got wrong. That's a wicked person. That's what the Bible would tell you. So why we don't hold them to that standard today probably says more about our faith than theirs. I don't know. Yep. So um, that was a good point, though. Um, the last point that I'll bring up is that they lay out what the qualifications for an apostle are. And I do think that this is important here as well, because like we mentioned, um, there are people today that go around claiming that they're apostles or that they have the gift of apostleship. Um, like we mentioned, the Pope, for one, I think, I don't know if he says he's an apostle or he holds the apostolic office. Or I don't know what they classify the Pope is. I don't, does anybody know? I don't know. But um, Nikki and I would wholeheartedly agree with the documentary here that there are no apostles, the big A apostles. If you want to call yourself an apostle because you're a sent one, fine. Um, but you don't have the gift of apostleship like the Apostle John or the Apostle Peter. That gift ceased with John. Uh, he was the last one to ever live with that gift. Um, that's what we would say. Um, so they go on in here to say that the four qualifications to be an apostle are that you must be chosen by Christ, you must be taught by Christ, you must have witnessed the resurrected Christ, and you must or you must have operated with real miraculous gifts. Um, hmm. So, again, I think that's a good thing to point out, and we here would agree certainly that nobody is walking around in here who was chosen specifically by Christ, taught specifically by Christ, witnessed a resurrected Christ, hmm. and operates in real miraculous gifts. Um, and again, the gifts that they're talking about here with the miraculous ones are healings, miracles, prophecies, and tongues. Those are the big four miraculous kind of gifts here. Um, and again, like Nikki said, healing in the sense of a specific gift of healing, not the gift that we all or the gift that we all have, which is 
the opportunity to go to God in prayer. That is a gift he's extended to all of us um, that he doesn't have to extend to us. And then God does what he wants. That's not what we're talking about. Um, so those gifts, again, is what the documentary is saying has passed away. Those are the ones that no longer exist in the church today. And those who operate in them, therefore, would be falsely operating in them. And I would say that doesn't mean that they're all necessarily evil, in a sense. Uh, This is a touchy one. This is a hard one, right? Because I don't think, I I certainly think there are false prophets who know that what they're saying is inaccurate and Mm -hmm. untrue. They have a girl in the documentary who talks about when she was in a more charismatic church, and she's like, I remember giving prophecies to people. And it was like, oh, you know, just kind of like the feel good, God loves you, wants you. Like to encouragement. Be. I've had people. Yeah. And she's like, it was a word of over me, but I, I don't see that as prophecy. They're not saying what's going to happen. They're just saying encouraging things that they hope will happen. Nobody is saying, God says this. Um, right. Yeah. And that's where she kind of made the point that I thought I was prophesying, but looking back on it now, she's like, I was just kind of given words of encouragement. It is kind of like a... I wouldn't call that necessarily evil, but definitely I would say it's misled by people who have raised her in the faith by teaching her something that's not true. Um, And then gullibility on her part to not search the scriptures for herself. Um, But again, I wouldn't say that that's evil the same way like somebody who says, you know, I've grown up in a church and I'm speaking in tongues because that's what I've been taught. Again, I wouldn't say that they're evil. They've been taught a certain thing. They think that what they're doing is, you know, real or whatever. I mean, I would disagree with it, but, you know, I think that that would be different than, again, you know, someone that's blatantly prophesying something that's false for their own yeah. gain. Or, you know, so I think people I think have a good intention. Nuance there. We had somebody prophesy over our boys when I was pregnant, and we held on to that prophecy for a long time, that lime green piece of paper. And the prophecy was very like it could have applied to anybody. And she said, one boy is going to be an explorer. Like you never know where he's going to be. And the other is going to be just like Spencer. So Spencer needs to fix things in his life that he doesn't want his sons to take. Fun fact, I haven't. (laughs) Pray for me. But that's like, okay, someone's going to be an explorer. So what? Um, Why would God need to tell us that? Why would that need to be a prophecy? Why would I hold on to that? Everybody should be trying to um, pay pay attention to who's watching them um, because we're all discipling everyone around us, really, whoever's looking to you, you bear the name of Christ, you need to be looking out how you're acting and make sure you're representing Christ, not just for your kids, but for everybody who's looking up to you. So it was a good word of encouragement, that part about make sure, because one of them's going to be just like Spencer. Kids are all like their parents anyway. Well, <laughs> like, and it's also a prophecy that doesn't matter. It doesn't like, matter. If it's is what right I mean. Right or wrong, it doesn't right. matter. And you'd you'd be hard pressed to determine if it was right or wrong either way. If you're like, well, my kid's not an explorer, and they're like, well, when he was three, did he walk around the block? And you're like, I guess he was an explorer from a young age. And you're like, 
okay. Yeah, I, mean, I guess then Ferdinand I didn't Magellan, know. Magellan, you know, but I wasn't aware that like that was like a gift of prophecy that this girl was trying. You know, that she thought that of herself. Right, and I think one of the other things, and again, you know, we were in this faith for a long time, and I would consider her at least at that time, and I don't know why I would change my mind, that she was an honest, you know, person seeking Christ and loved God. Yeah, yeah. what she could. But I remember she prophesied over me, like, you're like King David, you know, in the sense that you'll be a leader of people, but you don't have any specific, you know, gifting from God. But it's like leadership that she was giving. And I think I was talking to somebody about that, at, like, after that, and they're like, I mean, David had a gifting. He was prophetic. Like the book of Acts tells us David was a prophet. And you're like, okay, well, that obviously wasn't from God. Then if if God wrote the Bible, if he was the one speaking to David, he would know if David was a prophet. This supposed person prophesying over me didn't know that. I think that's a different lady than I'm talking about. Either way, but... Because we've know, had several people. Yeah, we've been part of these churches everywhere we've moved. Right. So, um, and again, I wouldn't say any of them were evil or had evil intention. I think they were doing what they thought was right. Right, I agree. And trying. Mm-hmm. But again, now looking back on that, I would say it wasn't a prophecy. Those were words of encouragement in a sense, mm-hmm. right? You get very few prophets standing up today telling us that America is going to be exiled into China's hands in these sorts of things like we saw with Jeremiah and these other prophets and having them come true. It's just, you know, it's repackaged scripture yeah. or the words of encouragement and those sorts like, of things. Like what about the large. Christians who don't have like a great calling? Everybody thinks that like God has some special prophecy for them, that they have a high call and they're going to be a David or a Joseph. What if you're just the manager of like goodwill or something? What if God prophesied that to you? You're going to be just a humble manager. You're just going to be a humble worker at the grocery store. Why would God even tell you that? Why does everybody need a special word from God? We all have a special word from God. It's in this, it's in the Bible. Let's go read it. Uh, yeah, no, it's again, but I do want to just make that nuance. I'm not calling those people necessarily wicked men, though. I think you're treading on wicked territory and it's something just ignorant. to concern when you start saying you're prophesying things, well, if you're getting yeah. them wrong, um, that's a humbling position to be in, in a place mm-hmm. that really ought to bring you to repentance and reflection on what exactly it is you're doing and what you are believing. Um, but there was a lot of other good points to discuss in this documentary. Highly recommend that you go and watch it. It's going to be our recommended watching at the end of this show, just a little FYI. Um, But then also, so you can make the decision for yourself. Obviously, we are not blind to the fact that many will watch this documentary and not be swayed in either way. And others will, you know, not like it one bit, be angered by watching it. And then others will just have their beliefs further cemented in what they already believe, right? Um, But maybe go into it with an open mind or just maybe hear an argument you haven't heard before and give you at least an excuse to dive into the Bible and see if it's true or false. But so why is this important to Christians? Um, I think it's important because with this documentary, with this idea of miraculous gifts and all of this, we're discussing God, his name, his character, you know, and his interaction in the lives of his people. Mm-hmm. And um, if what he, if what's being claimed about him is inaccurate or it's untrue, 
boy, that is eternally important for us is mm-hmm. the body of Christ. You know, if people are claiming to be doing something by the power of God and it's not true, and even worse, if they know that it's not true, but they continue it, well, I think we certainly need to call these people out at the very least, point them out as heretics and wolves and false teachers, and lead and encourage others to distance themselves from these people um, before they infect more and more. Um, Because I do certainly think we have many of those people alive today that are knowingly false Mm -hmm. in their beliefs and teachings and yet persist anyways. Yeah, people know that they can make a platform and they're just, they know there's a lot of gullible Christians and they're just making themselves some money off of people's gullibility. So Right. And it's a gullibility on one sense because you're taking advantage of people who really want to love God and serve him. Yeah. And they think that this is a way to do it at a greater level. So you're playing on their real desires and passions for God, which Mm -hmm. is good. But there's also the flip side of that, which is also dangerous and evil that we should distance ourselves. And they would be kind of classified as those like the high Calvinist sorts where they'll tell you, Mm -hmm. you know, you're elected, you don't, you don't, you don't have to do anything for God. You don't got to share the gospel. You can just lock yourself in a closet and you're going to heaven. They're probably equally as dangerous because you're leading people to be disobedient to what God has called them to also. You know, from one side of it, the charismatic side, they're in a sense preying on people's, you know, exuberant passions for God. Whereas the high Calvinist is more playing on people's laziness and apathy towards God. Yeah. So both are probably equally wicked and should equally be distant, uh, distanced from the church. So um, mm-hmm. what should we do about it as Christians? Um, and I think obviously we should devote ourselves to some serious study of scripture um, and study of this topic in particular. You know, so often there's so many different topics that are kind of pushing and pulling on, on us at the same time. It's hard to really buckle down and dig into one topic with enough sort of fervor to really come to a solid grip of it. But I think we owe it to ourselves as Christians to do this on every topic. You know, we should never just be someone that's like, ah, what do I care about that, you know, that part of doctrine or that part of Christian life? Right. No, we should care about all of it and learn enough to make a defense yeah, of all of it. people can take a doctrine and just lead people astray with it. It does matter. Yeah, it's all important. And, you know, it doesn't mean that you should devote yourself at all time to every doctrine. You can't do that. But if if you feel a prompting to, dig into it. I mean, you know, one that's come up recently has been head coverings for women. I know I haven't devoted myself to study in that area enough. I'd like to. Um, one that often gets glossed over is like end times. People are like, oh, I don't know. It's too confusing. What does it matter? Well, it does matter. and It's written for a reason for you to read it and understand it. It is one you have to yeah. a lot of time studying. And that's why, you know, the Bible tells us to meditate on Scripture day and night. Mm-hmm. Um, we're told often to meditate on Scripture, to store it up in our heart. And, you know, we're all supposed to be theologians as Christians. So um, this is a topic as well here, right? Cessationism, continuationism. Um, we deserve, or God deserves our, you know, devotion to study these things out. Um, and one of the points that they bring up, which I'm sure many who are continuationists would push back on, 
is the experience of charismatics. You know, kind of that idea that, you know, someone who would say, well, I've spoken in tongues, right? How can you tell me it's not not real? Or I've received a word from the Lord. How can you tell me that that's not real? Um, which is a hard argument to overcome, right? That's difficult to tell someone like, hey, the Bible says that's not real. And they're like, yeah, but I've done it. All right. Um, and that's tough, right? So um, I would just offer that, you know, we are to test all things. Um, and that means even our own experiences, we have to test those as well against the word of God. And, you know, we have to have enough faith in God and enough faith in his word that wherever our experience comes into conflict with scripture, your experiences or your thoughts are wrong. We have to have the faith to believe that, right? Um, and it's not easy. I get that. But I um, mean, also our own preferences, you know, obviously, I have a personality. And um, my personality is probably more prone to, you know, certain aspects of, you know, this is something we've talked about, like, for an example, praise and worship. Um, when I read in the Bible about people worshiping God, they're worshiping or worshiping him with, you know, a loud voice, singing, hands raised in worship, bowing down. I don't really do that. It makes me uncomfortable to sort of have my hands up singing loud, but I know it's wrong. Like at least the way I think about it, I read it. And I'm like, I'm not worshiping God the way I see people in scripture worshiping him. No. Um, so like mm. my own personality flaws are getting in the way of me just sort of being open to just l worshiping my savior. And like, I tell yeah. Nikki, I'm like, help me, tell me to get my hands up, you know, and get over this uncomfortableness. So even there's a point where like my personality has led me into a certain way of being a Christian. I'm kind of stoic in church to stand there. Yeah. Oh, that's a good old hymn, right? Instead of singing it and really getting into the worship, which I know I should. So there's a prayer request. Pray that I would worship God appropriately as yeah. he deserves to be worshiped. But, you know, so some people's personalities probably trend more towards a charismatic yeah. belief and expression of their faith, whereas another person's doesn't. But Some even that just cry. Like sometimes I can't men even don't or shouldn't. Like I can't I'm even kidding. sing sometimes. Like I I'm just overwhelmed with the emotion and I can't even sing. That's and one I don't of know the if areas. that's a form of worship. I don't remember reading that where you're just weeping. I think it is people <sighs> weep. I mean, and I would say, joking about men, that's one of my areas where men are allowed to cry is over sort of God in some respect. However, that you can cry over God. You can weep over him when you're sad. You can weep over worshiping of God. Did you goodness. see the Chuck Norris? I saw it circulating today. It says like Chuck Norris admitted to using a stunt double, but only um, when he had to cry. Or was worded something like that. I was like, that's good old funny. Chuck Norris jokes. But <laughs> um, but either way, right? Your personality traits, your experiences, God's word has to win out, which what you know, whatever way that takes you. If you're too stoic and you yeah. need to be a little more charismatic, if you want to call that in your expressions of worship, then you need to. Um, if you know you're so charismatic that you're claiming to be a prophet and the Bible doesn't tell you prophecy exists today. Well, then you need to walk it back. 
a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Either way that that goes. So, um, and now I'm not trying to suggest that those who believe in continuationism have never studied the Bible. I'm certainly not claiming that. There's scholars all over the place that believe those sorts of things. Um, in fact, the documentary even highlights some that we are big fans of. You know, people like John Piper and Wayne Grudem, they're continuationists in a sense. They're kind of the ones that are considered open but cautious. You know, they believe that the gifts happen, but they're pretty reluctant to ever sort of pinpoint where that gift is expressed. Um, But, you know, obviously, I'm a big fan of John Piper. Wayne Grudem is a very intelligent man, though we would disagree with them on that point. So we're not trying to say only cessationists have ever studied the Bible, and they're the only ones that are smart. None of that sort of stuff. Um, Just want to make that clear. But um, so how should we pray about it, right? Because Christians should pray about everything. Um, I think first we should pray that our hearts don't become hard towards those who don't line up with your, you know, predetermined beliefs or they're on the opposite side of you, you know, unless they're sort of the heretics, like the Benny Hens of the world, um, you know, we should probably be united in opposition against those people. But we kind of mean like your neighbor, your family member, your friend, these sorts of people, you know, we're cessationists, like I mentioned, Nikki and I, um, but we certainly believe that the body of Christ is made up of faithful men and women who love God passionately. They're God-fearing brothers and sisters in the faith, um, but they're continuationists. You know, we've gone to those churches, like we've said. We would never sit here and be like, "Boy, all those churches were full of false believers." No, we don't believe that at all. Um, though we would disagree with them on this um, expression of faith here. Yeah, if you have a friend who says they have the gift of healing, don't reject them when they want to try to heal you. I mean, still, that's a kindness still on their part to have compassion. Though I would say maybe it'd be worth a discussion if they bring up that I have the gift of healing. You know, might be worth a, hey, listen, I'm more than happy to have you pray for me and trust that God will move. But I don't believe that that gift exists today in you as a person. Your faith Um, in that person's gift or is your faith in God who hears your prayer, who sees your suffering, or is God allowing a suffering for a time in order to refine you? Um, We're not called to the wonderful life. We're, We're called to suffer with Christ, and God will do whatever it takes to form Christ in us. And often that's through suffering. Um, not always physical, relational too as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's just, where's your faith? Um, your faith is in Christ. It is in God. Um, who does heal, who is merciful. And that's the way we go to him and ask. So it's kind of one of those things like, is you ask God to heal you, but he didn't. So we're going to ask this person who has the gift that's from God. It's like, whether or not you're healed, it was God. I don't know. It's confusing. That's weird for sure. Um, God will only heal me through cousin Johnny. All right. Um, but no, either way, I think, you know, uh, I think we should be studying this stuff out. I mean, scripture is too important for us to sort of dismiss on this respect. Um, so I think you should pray and you should read scripture with an eye towards study, not just reading. Um, And then I think you can go and pick up some extra resources for yourself, listen and read different arguments. Um, 
I'll link down in the show notes a book that I read that was really good. It was um, the four different views of the miraculous gifts in the church from four different men that each hold to the different position. And they're all scholars, you know, um, so it's not just kind of, it's a really well-written book um, to give you all four arguments. And then you can go to scripture and see, you know, where you, where you fall. So um, I think this is a topic that's worth your time and your study. But um, do you have any last thoughts on the movie or just the the discussion topic before we move on and try to get in the rest of this show here without keeping people around all day? Oh, no. Can move on. All right. So, yeah, I certainly think it's a movie that's worth watching. I think it was a good watch, and um, I think you'll enjoy it. All right. So... We do have more discuss, uh, to discuss here today, um, and as Nikki mentioned in the open, we want to look at an article explaining six reasons we know the gospel writers didn't lie. So do you want to read this headline, honey? Six reasons why we know the gospel writers didn't lie. Yep. So let's look at these six reasons here and see if they're valid or not. Um, First one up here, it says, the gospel contains details that embarrass the writers. Um, It goes on here to list a bunch of examples. You know, for example, it says the apostles appear to be dim-witted. On many occasions, they don't understand what Jesus is trying to tell them. Um, It says they're rebuked by Jesus and fellow followers. Jesus rebukes Peter, Peter and calls him Satan. Then Paul rebukes Peter on a theological issue. So it gives a bunch of examples there. And I'm sure you could add many more examples in this list. And you could even go back into the Old Testament, right? Moses would fit into this sort of idea um, in the Old Testament. So Mm -hmm. um, I think this is a good point. I don't think it's, you know, the most rock solid point in the world on why they didn't lie. But I think it's a good point. I think it's a valid point. that, like they said, the uh, the Gospels contain details that would embarrass the writers. It seems like as you read the Gospels that they're detailing what happened rather than telling a story, you know, like a made-up story that's more like they're just telling you what actually right. happened because they're sort of writing about their lives. There's a lot of embarrassing, shameful things. Far more scripture. embarrassing than like— And you're like, what was the point of it? Other than, yeah, I mean, to point out that that's all of us, right? We're all Peter, you know, just an (laughs) idiot that gets things wrong. Yeah. Um, You know, because it's uncommon, I think, for like a writer of a memoir, let's say, to just sort of make fun of themselves and make themselves out to be a buffoon when, in fact, they're trying to be kind of a serious person. They're the apostles. They're the foundation of this faith. Yet all of their writings are, I'm a complete failure, loser. And you're like... What are you doing? Like, I know. You're supposed to be the hero of the story. Like, I am not the hero of the story. I got everything wrong. Uh, I mean, Moses, right? Pick somebody else, Lord. You're like, that doesn't seem like, you know, the King Arthur tale mm-hmm. that we would expect, right? <laughs> um, so not the most rock solid point, but I think point number one is a good point. Do you want to read point number two? The Gospels contain embarrassing details about Jesus. 
Yep. So kind of like the first point here. And they, they highlight some, you know, his own followers desert him. Um, mm-hmm. His feet are white by the hair of a prostitute, which could have been seen as a sexual advance. The crowds think he's a deceiver. Even his own brothers don't believe what he says. Um, right. So kind of yeah. like the first point there, you know, the gospel writers were kind of buffoons. And the Gospels contain embarrassing details about this supposed Messiah who came to save, you know, like, why would you write all that? Um, Mm -hmm. So again, kind of like the first one as well, I don't think it's the most rock solid point in the world, but I do think it's a valid point. You Mm -hmm. know, Jesus in the Gospels is portrayed as a real person being observed by real people. You know, Mm -hmm. because it's interesting that a lot of times these writers they're writing down that a lot of what Jesus is saying and doing, they're not even understanding when it happens. Yeah, Like they're going to each other and be like, what does he mean? How can anybody (laughs) even be saved then? You know? Right. And like, they're telling you like, Jesus really had to dumb his teaching down for me in order to The only part that does kind of sound like he was saying something to make himself stand out is when it's like, one disciple got to the tomb before the other one. Like yeah, out it's always ran, the Apostle John. Ran Peter. <laughs> the disciple Christ loved. Yes. And like, All right, John, settle down. Um, <laughs> you know, but I think that that's a good point there. You're like, and even also with that, like these people are writing about Jesus. They're Jews and, you know, first century Israel. Jesus's teachings seem to be going against what the religious of the day believed and taught and had been taught forever in that culture seems very weird they were just sort of making up a story that they're like this is gonna catch fire everyone will hate it you're like oh okay (laughs) smart um so that's point number two point number three do you want to read that one the apostles had no motive to lie Mm -hmm. yep so this to me is one of the great testimonies about who Christ was and the validity of his resurrection. You know, I think the actual apostles in their lives is validation for who Christ was. Um, because the apostles told you in the gospels who they were, right? Point number one, they're kind of buffoons. They were an embarrassment to Christ and a lot of, they were cowards. They were faithless people. Um, that's just who they were. And that's who they're portrayed to be in the Gospels, right? Even to the point where Christ in his hour of greatest need, Hmm. none of them could be found, right? They've all fled their supposed Messiah. You know, so how do you go from a faithless coward to martyrdom just Mm -hmm. a few years later? Right. You know, and to me, that gives validity to the scripture. And it tells me that these men saw the resurrected yes, Christ. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Just like the Bible tells it, us. It they really did. proves that he resurrected. And I think it's good that they didn't, like, it's just a good testimony. The fact that they're human, you know, we're just like them. We probably would have fled as well. But knowing he was resurrected, like, that sealed it for them. Like, they believed, but it was like, but Lord, help my unbelief. And his resurrection is it. It helps your unbelief. Like we all believe, but we need help with our unbelief. Yeah. So I think that's a great point there. The apostles had no motive to lie. So another point, I think that this, you know, as far as the apostles and their lives and their motive, 
um, highlights to me is just the stark difference between the apostles and their faith and understanding of what discipleship is um, and what so many are taught and believe in the church today. You know, the idea of poor, homeless, persecuted, martyrs, you know, those are basically, you know, you can consider them almost like curse words in kind of this seeker-sensitive church that we have today, this mm-hmm. prosperity gospel church that we have today in America. You know, so you kind of have to look at it and judge whose faith was right, whose understanding of what it meant to be a Christian was right. Was it the apostles who accepted the poor, homeless, persecuted martyr? Or is it us today who accept the seeker-sensitive prosperity version of Christianity? I would say, as for me and my house, we're probably going to go with the apostles' understanding of what it meant to be a disciple of Christ. Mm-hmm. So moving on here, we got point number four. Do you want to read point number four? The lives of the apostles were transformed. Yeah, and that's probably, we jumped the gun there a little bit. That's kind of what we touched on with point number three there. Um, these men were transformed. Their lives were changed. Um, and uh, even more than that, right? They were changed to the point where like, they were performing these miracles, these miraculous signs, and people saw them. And you consider that, you know, you grew up in that town, right? You knew Peter, James, mm-hmm. and John, and Andrew, and these people. And it's like, you know, Peter, the old fisherman, like knew that guy would turn into a nobody. And then there he is, right? healing a man at the gate called beautiful and then standing in front of a crowd and, you know, saving thousands, you know, there on the day of Pentecost, like what a transformation. (laughs) Hopefully someday those in my high school will say same things of me. I mean, that's what Jesus said to him. Be fisher of men. And they sure were. Um, But just, you know, the miracles that they did, right? Everybody could see them. And you got mm-hmm. Acts chapter um, 2, verse 5 and 6. You know, it says, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, this is the day of Pentecost, the crowd came together and they and were bewildered um, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. You know, this crowd that heard them, right, they weren't disciples, like they were just people in the city and yet they heard the sound of the holy spirit coming they heard people speaking in their native tongues that shouldn't have been able to speak in them and it you know these were miracles again touching back on what we started the show with where are these miracles today they were there with peter you know their lives were transformed they were completely different people um there's another one acts chapter 3 Verse 9 and 10. Do you want to read that, honey? And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Yeah, so that's kind of what we were talking about with Peter doing miracles that everybody saw. Everybody, you know, these men were transformed. They were disciples of Christ. They were doing miraculous works that everyone saw. They healed a man that the whole town knew yeah, was a knew. crippled man at the gate called Beautiful. 
Right. You know, this wasn't some sort of private miracle, some, you know, I'm healed. It just hasn't come yet. I just need to pray it into existence. This was, yeah. Peter showed up, a man was healed, and the whole town was like, what And it was to give testimony. Happened? It wasn't just for the person who was healed. It was a testimony to all who saw it. So... Yeah, I mean, that's the reason for the miracles, because that led into Peter's, you know, sort of um, discussion on, hey, you know, it wasn't me, right? And we've talked about this before. The beauty of Peter's message here was not to receive the praise on himself, but to point out, no, the one you should praise is actually the one you crucified, you fools. <laughs> you know, mm. like, um, great message from Peter. But yeah, they were transformed. Their lives were changed. That gives validity to their gospel and their testimony. Um, at least it does to me. So again, another good point there. Point number five. You want to read that? The apostles were qualified to testify to the truths they witnessed. Yep. Um, and then the writer goes down here and he says, they were present Jesus' apostles were eyewitnesses mm -hmm. to the teaching and the miracles of Christ. They were accurate. It says, why do we have four mm -hmm. Gospels instead of one? Because they were written to a different audience, which I think is a really good point. Mm -hmm. and he points out who the audiences were. It says, Matthew was written to the Jews so that they would know that Jesus was the Messiah. Mark based on the eyewitness of Peter, was written to the Roman Gentiles to show that Jesus became a servant. Um, Luke was written to Greek Gentiles to provide certainty of the universal nature of God's salvation, regardless of, uh, regardless of status or nationality. And then finally, John was written to display Christ's deity. Hmm. So that's why, you know, they were accurate because there was multiple ones. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, their stories were corroborated. It says, if you threw out the Gospels in the Bible, the testimonies from 1st and 2nd century non-believing historians like Josephus, Tacitus, and Pliny could reconstruct the Gospel message. You know, and I think that's what a lot of people don't understand or maybe they've just never been taught in a real sense if they've never studied like church history and, you know, the Near East kind of uh, Asian cultures and stuff like that, that while the Bible, you know, is the majority of the testimony about Christ and the apostles and the early church and stuff, there were also other historians that attested to it, um, not sacred scripture, but still you know, people like Josephus are credible historians. You know, most people would recognize that. So um, those are good points. And this is kind of, if you've heard the famous, you know, Vodi Bakum sermon, but this is almost in a sense, the Vodi Bakum sermon. You know, his thing was why I believe the Bible. And he says, I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine in nature rather than human in origin. So not sure you can sum that up much better than Vodi Bakum did there, but that is point number five. So here's the last mm. point, unless you had something on point five. No, sorry. <laughs> All right, the last point 
there was no Christian conspiracy. No Christian conspiracy. <clears throat> and then the writer, he said, uh, Wallace contends that a good conspiracy would have the following characteristics. It'd be of a few people in close proximity with good communication, protection over time, and no pressure. Mm. He says there were 12 apostles. This is a large number to accomplish a Christian conspiracy. Mm. And then it says, after Stephen was stoned and the apostles left Jerusalem for fear of persecution, they were scattered across the Roman Empire. Communication was extremely slow. They would have been interrogated in locations that prevented them from communicating with each other in a timely fashion. What's more, they would have no idea if any of their co-conspirators gave up the lie, mm -hmm. which I think is a good point, right? They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have email to be like, hey, man, you guys still continuing on with this made-up story? No idea, right? They, they don't know what anybody's doing in town to town. They're just trusting God and his sovereignty mm -hmm. that the work is being done and that the faith is persevering. That all 12 of these conspirators actually never turned away from it. They all endured till the end. And yeah, and it wasn't like the they chances. were just spread out from, you know, town to town. It wasn't, well, we're in the five boroughs of New York City, so we're, you know, a few miles separated. I mean, who was it? Is Was it Thomas? Apostle Thomas, maybe, I think he went to India to spread the gospel. He went quite a ways away and they just, and he was persecuted and died in India for his faith. Yet it, it withstood the pressure and the persecution. Thomas, I don't know if it was Thomas, please forgive me, but yeah. So these men were spread out far and wide. You know, it wasn't just like a small little community. They were willing they were. to do it alone. Yeah. So that says a lot, really, to go alone. Yeah. But. I mean, I think it says a lot. And again, they weren't communicating with each other. And um, it goes on here. It says, a good conspiracy requires time. The apostles would have had to protect their lives for a very long time. Many of them didn't know each other prior to their time as disciples of Jesus. Some were related and some were not. They would spend three years together with Jesus, but then decades apart from each other, testing the bonds of friendship and brotherhood, especially if their individual lives were in danger, which they all were. And those who believed their report about Jesus, their lives were in danger as well. Yeah. So other people, it's not like those other people endured in the faith as well. I mean, yeah. there's always people who, you know, can believe for a time and turn back like, Jesus told us, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually, I mean, such an incredible story. I mean, a, this faith that was birthed in persecution, mm -hmm. thrived in persecution, exploded in persecution. Mm -hmm. And now, honestly, when we find ourselves in a time of comfort, it's dwindling. It's dying in comfort yeah. rather than thriving in persecution. You know, so again, who's getting it right, them or us? Um, you know, that's the uh, the Steve Lawson quote. You know, the problem with modern day preachers is nobody's trying to kill them <laughs> because they don't speak anything that authorities and the, the powerful are afraid of. That is the big anymore. difference today. And Not then, that we want that to happen, but yeah. <laughs> no, but we should be preaching in such a way that maybe it brings a little, little bit of that on. Well, he, um, yeah. 
And then he, uh, last bit he says here, finally, successful conspiracies are unpressured. The apostles were aggressively persecuted. And he says, as I mentioned, they were scattered from Jerusalem to Italy, Italy and India. All 12 of them suffered unbelievable physical pain and died a martyr's death. Again, a very poor, if this was a conspiracy, very poorly conceived and executed conspiracy. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if it was the work of God, well, then it might have turned out exactly the way it did turn out, exploding across the world. Um and, you know, reaching every nation, every tribe and tongue, like the Bible said it would. Yeah. So, you know, you can contend if you want that the Bible, what it says isn't true, um, but you can't contend that these men didn't believe it. You mm -hmm. know, this was no, certainly no conspiracy from these 12 men. It was faith. Now, again, you might say, I don't believe what they believe. Sure, that's another argument, but they certainly believed it. They, they weren't, weren't fabricating something. Yeah, they weren't asking anybody to do anything crazy, just to not live for yourself, like to live for others, to lay down your desires, just to not live selfishly. Like yeah. that was their instruction to believers, really. Forgive one another. Why would you die? Like, you know, there's similar religions that are about, you know, peace and well, tolerance. Nobody's dying for that. Nobody's hated for that. But when you have it about repenting of your sins... Um, or telling somebody they're a sinner. Yeah. That's what people hate. Like, people don't hate the idea of peace, forgiveness. People want to be, you know, they like the idea of it, but nobody really... You can't do it without the power of God in you, really, to live that kind of life. Nope. So I would say, yeah, I mean, you know, conspiracy, unlikely. Um, but I think these are some good points. So what do you guys think of these points here, these six points? Do you agree that they sort of bolster the claims that the gospel writers, you know, didn't lie um, or not? You know, do you think, yeah, those are kind of garbage excuses or garbage points and, you know, they don't really sway me one way or the other. Um, do you think there's better evidence or do you think there's additional evidence? Um, mm. We'd love to hear that if you have other points that, you know, maybe, you know, like for me, I said kind of the point that really swayed me was just looking at who the apostles were before or um, the crucifixion and after the crucifixion, you know, that really, for me, gives me a lot of faith. What is it for you? Um, I'd love to know those things. Mm. So please come let us know in the comments, find us on social media, or email us. Uh, we love to have those discussions. Um, we obviously believe that the Bible is true and accurate. Um, we believe every word of it. And more than that, we want to believe every word of it. You know, I, there are things that are tough to believe. There's things that are hard to believe. Um, but we want to believe all of it to the point where, you know, even if we think that we may know something, if you can point out where we might be wrong, we want to go and re-examine our beliefs in that area. Um, you know, again, you may not agree with our beliefs, but our beliefs did change fairly radically in the last five, six years um, mm -hmm. with us reading and, you know, laying down a lot of preconceived and old ideas. Um, and we want to continue that, right? That's the mm -hmm. whole reformed and always reforming kind of mindset. Yeah. 
never just going, this is what I believe and I'm not getting off this rock. Oh, no, I want to read and study and be, you know, be sharpened by the sharpened word and all that. Yeah. Doesn't mean we'll agree with you, you know, but we certainly want to hear it. So come let us know. But I do think these points are good. Do you have any final thoughts on these six points before we get into our last topic of the day? No, we can go on to it. All right. This is a topic I think is worth discussing today. Um, and it has to do with modesty. And as Nikki said, this is why I've decided again to leave the gym. <laughs> so there's been a trend going around that I have noticed for the last been really a few months, I suppose. Um, and it's a trend where girls are tucking their shirts into the back of their pants, which may sound weird, but, um, you know, they're wearing like baggier shirts, but they tuck them into the back of their pants rather than the front. Specifically, you could say so that their butts would show. And I found some articles talking about this very thing. Um, there's this one from the U.S. Sun. But talks about, you know, I tuck my shirt into the back, whatever. Um, this article is kind of talking about some girl who did it. I found a Reddit thread who's doing the same thing. Why are girls tucking their big shirts into their sports bras or the back of their pants is the way I've seen it. Um, so it's being discussed. I'm not the only one apparently in the world that has seen this and taken notice of it. Um, but it's been gaining traction at the gym that I've gone to. I've noticed it, um, the one that I worked out at. And, you know, I used to go to the gym. I've gone, I've worked out for, you know, the last, whatever, 18 years or so at this point now, pretty consistently. Um, but then a while back, I stopped going to the gym because of how immodestly I thought people were dressing, you know, mm -hmm. as the spandex and kind of yoga pants mentality became more mainstream and it seemed every girl was wearing that sort of stuff. I kind of was like, man, I shouldn't be in this environment working out. Um, and I stopped going to the gym for a while and I just worked out at home and those sorts of things. And then after moving from our old house to the new house that we're in now, kind of got rid of the weights that I had at home, started going back to the gym because it's close by our house. It's very easy to get there. Um, and then just kind of got into a routine, you know, went to the gym every day or whatever after work, whatever happened to be. But then a few months ago, I started seeing this pop up in the gym that I go to. And, you know, right away I saw it and I was like, boy, there's only really one reason I can think of that you're doing that, you know? So I had that thought, but you know, the routine's the routine. So you just keep going back. Um, mm -hmm. but now it seems to be getting more prominent and it certainly bothers me, uh, as I saw it. So I came back and I mentioned to Nikki, like, you know, I think this is a topic we should discuss this idea of girls tucking their shirts into the back of their pants. You know, we want to talk about things that are culturally relevant on this show and how Christians should deal with it. Um, but Nikki, to her credit, made the very astute point that like, uh, it'd be pretty hypocritical if you brought this up and discussed it on the show and then went back to the gym. And I never really thought of it that way, kind of to my shame. Um, probably again, because I'm a man of routine. I like my routines. I get stuck in my routines and I come out of them very slowly with much wailing and gnashing of teeth, but it was a very good point for her. So, um, I thought first and foremost, maybe a bit of public repentance is due on my part for being in that environment and, you know, not really 
going, you know, knowing it's wrong, but still staying around. Um, so forgive me for that, for you listening, for you guys that have checked out the show, please forgive me, accept my repentance. Obviously my repentance is only to God. Um, but I do want to make a public profession that I was in a place I shouldn't have been in. And I knew I shouldn't have been in there, but I was slow to doing anything about it, which is why God blessed me with such a great wife who pointed that out to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I should have had better discernment, you know, and I did, I guess, in a sense, I knew it was wrong. So I don't know if discernment's the right answer, but more, um, I don't know, um, understanding of the dangers, I suppose. Um, we always tend to think that way, right? Like you can see something's wrong and be like, boy, you know, somebody's really going to get tricked there. And then you're kind of doing the same thing. Um, because I don't think in that moment I wasn't, you know, lustful in those, but just recognizing it and like, boy, there's only really one reason you're going to tuck that shirt to the back of your pants. And it's so people can stare at you. I you don't know imagine. who they're doing it for. Maybe they're doing it just for you and you. I hope not. I don't know. <laughs> but either way, accept my forgiveness. Um, I've repented to God as well, but it is worth that. So pray that I'll have better discernment and act better on my discernment. Um, but back to the article, you know, this one that we um, have from the U.S. Sun, this girl kind of mentions that she only does it for gains. Somehow she tucks her shirt into the back of her shirt and it's for Can gains. you explain to me and everybody else? What does it mean? What is gains? Gains is just, you know, <laughs> strength, right? Building muscle, building strength. You're gaining muscle, gaining strength. So it's your gains. Gaining size. You know, a lot of guys are what gaining is, size. How does the way you dress affect your muscle you gain? Uh, I mean, it doesn't, obviously. Well, and they go in this article to kind of talk about, well, some of the girls tuck the shirts into their back because their backs get sweaty and it's a way to get airflow or something to their back. Um, Okay, the girl it. in this picture is wearing what looks like a 100% cotton shirt. Um, you're going to sweat in that. Like there's there's shirts that are breathable. That right, you so wear. you would say you only wear that baggy shirt for that specific reason because you're going to tuck Like if you don't want to be sweaty, don't wear that and then tuck your shirt in. Right, yeah. and to me it seems even more than like the, you know, obviously people at the gym have been wearing tight fitting clothing and those sorts of things forever well guys' shorts are getting shorter right notice that is... like men too like i don't i don't think it looks nice when guys wear short shorts like showing their their thighs, thighs and yeah stuff. and yeah i would consider it much the same way right why would a girl wear a big shirt to tuck into the back of her pants or her sports bra um, other than to have people see it, it's no different than a guy who wears a shirt where the entire side and arm is cut out so that all of their arm and, you know, side of their chest shows. They don't wear that for gains. They wear that to show off their arms and their chest and body and stuff. That's the only reason you wear it. Uh, so it's the immodesty goes both ways. Because whenever you bring up female immodesty, there's always someone going, well, what about men? Yeah, they do it too. And it's wrong. Um so, you know, she says it's about gains. Um, I would disagree with that. I think the only gains you're looking for when you dress in this uh, way is gaining the attention that you get for having people look at you and mm -hmm. look at you, what I would imagine, for sinful reasons. 
Mm-hmm. And First um, Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, do you want to read that, honey? Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Yep. Um, And, you know, I think anytime you bring up the discussion about modesty, right, you're going to get a bunch of pushback from people like, well, what is modesty? What's immodest? Yada, yada. It changes with the culture. It changes with the culture, right? You know, who says you get to police what modesty is and all this sort of stuff. But all I know, right, is going to the gym, tucking your shirt in so that everyone can see your butt, even though you're wearing baggy clothes, is immodest, right? And this, to me, is the idea of what Peter is saying here. You're adorning yourself merely external. You're adorning yourself in such a way that draws people's eyeballs to your external mm-hmm. person, right? Yeah. Um, you're dressing in this way at the right. gym because you want people to notice you in some way that's not necessarily the inner person, your soul, and you know all these sorts of things. It's the external. That's the reason you're doing it. So... You know, my whole point for bringing this article up is first to repent to you guys that I didn't use better discernment, but two, to tell you not to do it. (laughs) Don't dress this way. If you go to the gym, you know, don't dress this way. You know, if you're married, whatever, your body should be for your spouse. Um, Mm -hmm. You don't need to, you know, get your attention and get your, I don't know, um, Make yourself feel good, emotional, mm-hmm. whatever happens to be, because other people are yeah. staring at you. Um, you don't need any of that, you know. Find your joy in the Lord and in your spouse. If you have to go to the gym, dress modestly. You can still work out effectively. I remember watching a guy, big, you know, he wasn't like overly big, but he was a fitness influencer kind of thing. And he used to go to the gym and he would have like cargo pants on and he would wear like a loose kind of button-up shirt, like a short sleeve button-up shirt. And it was weird. I mean, it was kind of his thing, so it was cool. But you're like, mm. you know, he was big. He was strong. He worked out really hard. Mm. Um, he didn't have to have his sleeves ripped out and his shirt, you know, in shreds just so he could curl. Um, and a girl doesn't need to dress this way just to get gains either. And in fact, if you're at the gym to work out, maybe a little bit of back sweat's a good thing. It lets you know you're actually working hard. Um, so don't dress this way. And, um, if your girlfriend or your wife is currently dressing this way, tell them to stop. I would say the same thing if they're wearing yoga pants and tight fitting clothes out in public, tell them to stop. And heaven forbid, if you have a daughter who does this, please, for their sake, correct them. Um, do not let them grow up in this immodest world, being comfortable, being immodest. The comfort about it. Yeah. Um, it's immodesty. And it leads others to a place of sinning. And Christ pronounced woes against those who tempted others into sin. Mm -hmm. So if this is you at the gym, that woe is for you. You're leading other people into a place of sin. Mm -hmm. And again, same goes for the guy. Dress modestly. Mm -hmm. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, the fashion. Obviously, it's a huge bane on our existence. But this is a new one for me. And it's uh, shameful and should not be done in, I think, Christian circles for sure. 
Yeah. And it always goes back to the heart. Um, like why someone dresses the way they dress. And I don't know. At first when Spencer brought it up to me, I thought, well, maybe they are just doing that just because it, like if you're doing squats, you don't want a long shirt. Like it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to kind of pull and make it tighter on your neck, you know, if it's when you're doing your squat. But so I tried to be a little understating at first, but then he pulled up those articles. I was like, oh, they're just admitting. But um, yeah. And I just think, I mean, as a Christian, you know, love for others um, should be the forefront of your mind. And yeah, like you said, if you're tempting someone and you don't care, you're not loving them. You're not doing the loving thing. So yeah, you don't want to tempt anyone to sin. That's, I know that is such a hard thing for our, our culture. We just want to be noticed. We want to be admired. And the easiest way to do that is, yeah, go to the gym because it's acceptable to dress immodest there. Yeah. Um, I mean, pretty much everywhere else now too, I guess. Um, everybody's used to it. But the gym, I was thinking on this, it's, that's really like Satan's territory. Like you're going into his territory and you're going to be tempted. Like that's not going to church and then you know, correcting other brothers and sisters on how to dress. You can't like go into a worldly place and tell people, hey, you know, God's not pleased with that. You're not supposed to do that. Like they're not going to get it. I mean, if there's other, if you know a brother or sister in Christ in the gym doing that, yeah, sure. You can speak to them and hold them to that godly standard that they claim to live by. Um, so yeah, we should be focused on putting others first, not ourselves whether even if we're uncomfortable working out, um, it's not about about our comfort. Um, I can't say it's more comfortable to wear these. It's more comfortable to wear these leggings and this tiny top. But you're well, and, you're being selfish. You're only thinking about you. You're not. Thinking you can about, do that. I would say, and there's nothing. That's something that's comfortable to work in. Do that in your home. There's buy some weights and. Put a gym in your garage and right. dress as comfortably as you want mm -hmm. or, you know, as sultry as you want, fine. You know, but again, taking that out to the public, I think is yeah. immoral. Mm -hmm. Like it's not a big sacrifice to dress modestly. It's not, it really isn't asking a lot in our culture acts like you're asking them to do something way more serious. But, um the thing is, like, men want to protect their wives from, from men who, you know, might approach them. But women want to protect their men, too. Um, I think... You should want to. Yeah. I mean, the reason I said what I said to you is more because I care about your soul. I mean, I could have been... I mean, of course, for me, too, it made me feel kind of insecure. I'm like, well, you know, all these thoughts going through my head. But really, I'm like, well, I care about your soul more than I care about my my feelings or any worry I have. Because if you're honoring God, you're naturally going to honor our marriage, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's why I kind of brought it up the way I did. And I didn't want to make it all about me and me being just telling you what you should do. So I knew that you wouldn't argue against it because we've had this discussion before. He's never argued and been upset about it. It's been like, ugh, it's just kind of inconvenient. Like, now I got to go find some weights and 
it's okay. We always, <laughs> we've always found a way. It was good. But... I actually got me back into the gym with my boys. I, we have a smaller yeah. little gym that no one uses near our house. So I was able to go there with them. So that was probably even better, a blessing in the end. Yeah. So we have to recognize it as a spiritual battle. So I think Christians are going to look at this differently than the world looks at it. They're going to argue from a different angle. They should. Um, so the world just sees no harm in it. But yeah, we see the eternal consequences of all things. Or we should. We should try to look at everything. How is this going to affect eternity for me or for others? So yeah, the, I just was thinking how like, yeah, I got to go to the gym, even though there's immodestly dressed women there. But I got to do it or I'm not going to be able to get a good workout. I'm like, that's like people saying, I don't know if people ever had really used it. It was just a joke, but going to Hooters for the wings. <laughs> it's like yeah. you can get good wings at another restaurant. You can get a good workout anywhere else. You could you could go anywhere else. You can work out at home. You can change well, up your routine. Well, at the end of the day too, right, your, um, your priorities are wrong. Right, if you're more concerned about your physical appearance than your spiritual uh, well-being, yeah, you know that's you, your mindset is wrong. I don't like going to the gym honestly because I I know there's people there who just are there for the attention, and I don't know. It's just an awkward environment for me. Like you just know people check each other out. It's just the place they want to see who's bigger than me, and just. It's just a place to compare yourself with others, really. I don't like that environment at all. I feel uncomfortable working out because I feel people are probably looking at me, they're judging me, or lust. And it, I don't want to be – I know when people look at me, if they're looking at me, they're only thinking one of those two things. <laughs> like, what else are they thinking? Yeah, it's a weird environment for sure. So – I don't know. Um, just pray for me that I, you know, don't fall back into old bad habits there. Um, you know, I won't let you. <laughs> able to get a good workout because I do enjoy working out. I like, yeah, I like the process. So maybe it'll be a little more running and calisthenic type stuff. So we'll see what happens. But um, just wanted to address that because it's something that I've seen popping up in our culture, and you know, we don't, we shouldn't give in to the cultural whims. We should stand against them if they're not God honoring. Mm -hmm. But with that being said, uh, that's kind of all we had for this week. We do want to give you our recommended watching. It will be this week. So as we mentioned earlier, our recommended watching is just going to be Cessationist, um, the movie we discussed and reviewed earlier. It's on Amazon. Links to it will be down in the show notes if you want to go give that a watch. Um, I certainly recommend that you do um, because Christians ought to be diving into these doctrinal issues and mm -hmm. wrestling with them and, you know, um, spending some time devoting ourselves to understanding them, whichever way you shake out. Um, we'd love to know if you do check out the movie and what you thought of it. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, sharpen us. We're happy to have those discussions and, and learn from, from those of you out, those of you out there. So, uh, but otherwise that's all we got for today. We'll be back again on next Saturday and this week, I'll be ending my sort of daily, which is such a drain to try to do like a daily YouTube short or TikTok. Takes a lot out of you. Um, that'll be ending on Tuesday with Reformation Day. So happy Reformation Day for all of you out there. 
uh, go think a, think a Protestant if you know one today, um, and maybe go read an English translated Bible in honor of Reformation Day. But that's all. We'll see you guys again next week. God bless.